0: This is the Smith Sense podcast with Matt Smith. Thanks for tuning in again. My name is Anthony Bruno, and every week Matt and I discuss concepts in business, entrepreneurship, and leadership that he's developed over his many years as a successful entrepreneur and leadership coach. Today's topic was gambits, which we define as a relatively low risk strategic move that has the potential for a big payoff. Now, this is different from growth hacking, right? Gambits are designed to help identify an opportunity in a way that even if failed, still helps reveal something about the business landscape you're operating in and helps you navigate it better in the future. After years of working for and with Matt, I can say he's a big fan of the gambit and I always enjoy the experience. I also enjoyed this interview, so here you go. Next up, Matt Smith. Hey, Matt, how's it going this morning? Good, Anthony, how are you? I am doing well. I am without breakfast or coffee. so oh, you've got some coffee first. If I'm irritable. <laughs> <laughs> if you're
1: irritable, that's yeah. the
0: reason? That's one of for, usually several. So I had a question for you. Yes. Um, the other day, we were doing our annual planning meeting with everyone. One of the things you mentioned kind of caught my interest, and I wanted to talk about it today we know obviously we had some plans that we were looking for as a company. We had a couple of specific initiatives that we have uh, now set and assigned and whatnot, but you mentioned there were a couple of things that you wanted to do that you described to somebody in the meeting as gambits. Yeah, I had not heard that before. So if you could explain what's a gambit and how does that fit into like the difference between a proper initiative or a plan or things like that?
1: I started thinking about the term gambit when I was actually trying to explained to Gary why I was trying to do something that seemed—it just seemed unlikely to succeed. And it was not cheap, but it wasn't super expensive, but it was unlikely to succeed. And so I was trying to explain to him what I saw it as, and the best word I could think of described before it was a gambit. And a gambit is often associated with chess. It's like an opening chess move where you sacrifice a pawn in order to gain some future strategic advantage. Mm-hmm. So in our business, we're inventing we don't really know what the ultimate end of our product or our marketplace is, like exactly how it's going to function to best serve both sides of the market that we work with. We just don't know. I mean, we know way more than we did four years ago, but it just seems like at every point when we look back six months, we go, boy, we learned a lot in the last six months. If you are only operating in, in known territory the whole time, then it's impossible to ever have that advance. So you have to try some things that go into unexplored territory that are that are definitely less likely to succeed, but they help you, if nothing
0: else, improve the map of the territory. Does that make sense? It makes sense that, in that I guess I look at it more like, like a military point of view, but yeah. it's, like, it's like you're kind sort of probing. Like if it was one army against another, maybe you test the defenses to see how strong it is. And if, it's, if it gives a little bit, then you know you should attack more there. And if it's too strong back, then you know you got to pivot somewhere else. Or you're in a room with the lights off.
1: You don't know where the door is. You don't know where the kitchen table is. And you just kind of feel around and find out just to gain that map. Like, what is everything actually, what are we working with here? You got to orient yourself. Okay. There's a famous business author named Jim Collins. He's a professor at the University of Boulder. He wrote this book, I believe in like 99 or something called Good to Great. Good to, have to Great. It? Yeah, I actually have heard of that. Yeah. And he wrote a couple of other subsequent books, but Good to Great is kind of the, the biggest thing he's known for. And in one of his later books, he talks about this concept of bullet, bullet. Cannonball, I think is what it is. Okay. And his whole idea is that you need to organizations, and he's mostly talking about, you know, Fortune 500 companies okay. in all of his analysis, large companies. But I, I think it kind of applies. He, his idea was that, you know, you have to fire bullets in different directions because you're not sure what's going to work. And then once you kind of triangulate it, you get it sort of oriented right, then you actually load up the cannon, you get the organization to it, and you fire, you know, the resources at it. Right. That's his idea. So that's been in the back of my head for. I don't know, eight years or whatever, 10 years since I read. I can't remember which of the name of that book was where he came up with that idea. But there's always something that seemed wrong to me about it, though. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about where I think his idea
0: is a little bit wrong. And mm-hmm. I'm sure if I talk to him personally about it, he'd probably yeah, convince me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anybody who puts an idea on paper at some point right. afterwards wishes they had done it differently.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's nuanced anyway. But um, So I'll tell you, like he uses the example of Apple, actually. Uh, and everyone uses Apple. Everyone so uses yeah. apples. And thing, here we get, go again. And so the thing is like, you know, the thing is you can look at any company or you can look at anything from the outside and you can make it look like whatever example you want. So his whole idea is with Apple and, and the iPhone. The iPhone was the cannonball. But he says, his, his point of view on it, what he argues is that, and in my, my analysis, basically gambit or gambit is essentially the bullet, okay? is the bullet. Okay. Yeah, to use a parallel. Okay. Yes. Now, I just don't believe the cannonball exists, but uh, I'll get to that in a second. So he says that, you know, first they, they had the iTunes for Mac that launched in 2001. Mm-hmm. Then the iPod came out at the end of the year, and then like October of that year, 2001. Then the iTunes Music Store came out two years after that in 2003. And those were like bullets firing, you know, firing, firing, and it's working. Okay, there's something to this music organization, software, low risk, you know. If you think of that as a gambit, an opening move where you're willing to sacrifice a pawn if the software doesn't work, it's going to be relatively low risk, you know. But if it works, then it puts you in a position where what your business you're really in, which is hardware, you can release the iPod successfully. So it had to have that music organization thing on people's computers. and People had to adopt it before you could ever get a hardware to connect with it that would work, right? It's a gambit for that. And then there's a, the gambit with the iPod that came out. And then there's the, you know, having to get more people involved with the music industry agreeing to it. And they had the iTunes store that came out, another gambit. His idea is that then, okay, they go, oh, there's something to this now. And they spend a huge amount of R&D. I think they called it Project Purple. That was what they called the and iPhone they- development. Apple spent something like $2.6 billion in R&D from when they announced Project Purple or when it came out that this existed until the iPhone was released in 2007. Okay. And the idea is that these guys spent $2.6 billion in R&D and bet the farm, that they bet the farm, this was their cannonball on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. So his bullet, bullet, cannonball. The most important part about this his principle is that the organization has to fire these bullets, has to take these gambits to see what's possible.
0: Well, and you said a word there that I found interesting, which was resources, right? Now, Apple. It's a good example because everyone knows it and we're familiar with it and we probably have the result of that uh, in our pocket uh, for the most part. But Apple's a company that has nearly unlimited resources to do, they do all now. kinds of things. They do now, exactly. Maybe, but, remember, but even but even then, if you compare it to where most startups are, it was still quite a, a bit more. Okay? a startup, of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, They've been around for 20 years already. right? At exactly, exactly. So, yeah. what I'm trying to get at. so as a startup, like I'm just kind of curious, how do you decide when to start experimenting with gambits, how many, and at what size, given what you are able to do and the consequences of spending wasted effort at an early stage of a, of, a, of a company. You have to start the gambits immediately. It's all a gambit. I mean, the starting of a
1: business is a gambit, <laughs> okay. right? Yeah. But then you start in a way that first of all is relatively low risk, and then you, you don't bring on a hundred employees right away, mm-hmm. you bring on one, you know, you bring on two. So it's all actually that gambit. It's testing the boundaries, seeing it. it's, a gambit helps you create a map to identify what's possible. Jim Collins version, then when you know it's possible, you fire a cannonball, you put all the resources at it, you know, you triangulate the organization on it and you go after it. That part where there's this top down, here's this hill, we're gonna take it, mission planning like that. Mm-hmm. I think that part's not true. I think that actually it's just scaled up gambits because the launch of the iPhone at the time, they say, I just want to put this in perspective and mm-hmm. prove my point, I guess, that it's just another gambit the mm-hmm. iPhone was. There's two point six billion of R and D in total that Apple spent during that like four year period, okay? So mm-hmm. it's not like just on the iPhone. They don't, we don't know how much it was on the iPhone. And during that time period, Apple generated more than $7 billion in free cash flow after they spent that. Free cash, flow so that's cash in their pockets they had to spend after they invested that, and more than $5 billion in actual profits that they had during that same time period. So it was by no means before the iPhone bet the farm. It wasn't even close to it, but people's position is like, they just went big on the iPhone. That's what they saw, it's what they knew. That's what it seems like it, but they don't understand that like, in the same time period, Apple had lots of other gambits. Like I've been in mm. Apple... I've gone away from Apple because I get frustrated with sometimes their lack of love for their customers. But um, you know, I've been a Mac user forever, Mm -hmm. and so they had all kinds of products that didn't succeed. What about you know Apple's server line? Yeah, that was a gambit that happened in the same period where they were doing all the R and D for the iPhone. That doesn't exist now. No one even knows it ever existed before. But it was huge. They had rack servers, and they had lots of things like that. Their whole speaker line. Now they're trying the HomePod again. It came back, but they had they were trying the whole speaker thing. They had a big speaker line that they were working on. And um, in any case, a lot of the gambits fail. Most of the gambits, you never even, you know, and Apple never even became products that were ever commercial. But there are lots that probably happened in the background. And they had to be doing these all the time. And it's also that they can map the terrain, you know, of what's possible. So there's those gambits. Again, Jim Collins says, then you go big with a specific idea. But actually, I think what, what you do actually is that once you know the basic map of the territory, then what you do is you start the process that's a lot more like iteration, a lot more what I guess people would think of now as like almost growth hacking. Okay. I mean, do you know how many versions of the iPod there have been? How many different
0: types of iPods did Apple actually Shit, you're, you're testing my memory without breakfast and coffee. So I'm going to say like, I don't know, there had seven or more maybe. 25. 25. 25. Oh, geez. Remember the Nano and all the other, yeah. you know, the, the Mini and the, the… They had a flash drive the, the, one. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. That was the, I think that was the Nano.
1: The thing is, is that people look at, even they look at the iPhone and like, well, they came out with the
0: iPhone. And the then, iPhone replaced everything.
1: It did. It, it, like, it obviously killed the product line. It was really great. They took the, the Gambit and then they've just followed the market, essentially. They've seen where it would go and pursued it. But there have been 24 different versions of the iPhone so far. So the Gambit, they find something that works and then it's iteration and trying to find better product alignment. And there's not no revolution in product at that point. It's just kind of iteration to get it right. If Jim Collins is saying that the iteration part is the cannonball, where the whole organization is you know, really focused on it, then I think that's true, but not the risk part. It's more about like, the organizational march toward making it better. A gambit is for invention and understanding, and then the iteration, once you have that kind of understanding, is for capturing the value of the market. The gambits are something that happen all the time. Every organization that's successful that's inventing
0: anything has to do it. If you stop taking these gambits, you start dying immediately. I'm glad you mentioned that because, of course, I, I tend to pick music quotes. And you're saying, he not busy bor- being born is busy dying. That's, that's, that's right. the Bob Dylan line, right? Yep. So, And as a company, that's the case. And Gambus is the way of trying to test to see in which direction you want to grow. Basically. It's even to understand what's possible. In our
1: business, we're learning all the time what's possible. You know, We released what we called a new product, the 10-year term You know, for artists. right? We had no idea whether or not they would accept it. We had no idea whether or not investors would accept it. We came up with a good case for why we thought it was possible they would but we had to test it. You know, now it makes
0: up more than half of our business. So these are some of the questions I want to get at, Ed, which is the actual implementation of this as an idea. You know, these gambits do have real dollar costs, um, you know, staff resource mm-hmm. costs, time costs, opportunity costs, things like that. What level of commitment do you need to provide to a gambit that's enough for it to give and provide a real test but not so much that you're betting the farm just yet. You never, ever,
1: ever bet the farm.
0: Well, there's betting the farm and then there's a sort of like a weak feint. I'm just trying to get a yeah. sense of how much strength really needs to be there. It's a weird question, but I, I just-
1: No, I think it's a good question because that's the, the question is proportionality. Like, is right. a, like what's a, you're supposed to reach for something big. If you want to invent something that has great value in the world, then you have to go to places that haven't been thought of before. The way you get there is not by- you know, not through these necessarily these moonshots where, you're like, you you know, you're actually reaching for the impossible, like a known fixed thing in the future that is so big. You know, and you're working a long march toward that. That's a very sort of a top-down way of doing things. It's very difficult to do it. Mm-hmm. If you have a hypothesis about the way the future might be, what is the smallest thing you, that you could do? Almost think of it like radar, where I can send out a radar signal and it's going to return to me some positive information that there might be something here, okay? So if you think of a radar signal, like if there's a target, you're in a a dark room and you're a bat, let's say. There's a table in the middle of the room and I send out my echolocation thing toward it. Where the table isn't present, I get nothing bounces back at me. And where the table is present, I get a little bounce back. Now, it doesn't tell me exactly what's there. It just tells me there's something there, but that's a positive feedback loop. A gambit is shooting off in a direction, spending, maybe it's a, a small advertising spend. Maybe it's hiring a new employee. It's for us opening a Nashville office. Mm. It wasn't terribly risky. We didn't commit to a five-year lease. We didn't do any of that. We just, we kept it as little as possible with people with enough resources there that we, it wouldn't just be one person that maybe, you know, we would know it, maybe it was that person that was the problem. It wasn't mm-hmm. just, so what's the minimum we could do and, that, and what sort of signal would we receive if we were onto something? Well, with the Nashville office we opened, well, we would expect we'd get more Nashville business at some point. Mm-hmm. So what period of time is that? Well, Within six months, we should get some more Nashville business than we got in the prior six months. We didn't. So the, the lack of feedback is negative feedback. You know, it's telling you that maybe there's not something here.
0: You're looking for signs of hope, essentially. Is there like some sort of set, like, no, don't commit more than X percent of your resources to it? You know, I don't know if there's like the, some kind of, not a mathematical equation, but just this, this some kind of way of saying, you know, not much more than this percent of what you're doing at first for a gambit if you uh, could put a number on it or even if it's less specific than that i'm sure that you know when you get at the
1: scale that like apple is doing these gambits mm-hmm. i mean apple by the way spent something like 16 billion dollars in 2019 in r&d mm-hmm. and they didn't do it for little iterations of their iphone that's not what they're spending the money on so to compare that to you know the 2.6 billion they spent over four years for the iphone you know proportionally the business apple's business is so much bigger it's actually a smaller r&d spend than it was way back then so to them, it's like, if we can't get a return on this, it's not going to change the business in any dramatic way.
0: So the answer isn't necessarily a number. It's It depends on your business. How much can I commit to this gambit in a way where if it falls flat in a month or however, whatever time frame, that we're not going to be stressed?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things in our leadership planning meeting, we talked about a digital distributor. And We mm-hmm. talked about a specific number that we thought it would cost us to launch one. And that number for us was something that is probably is the upper limit of a test for us, but it does seem like it's worth it. And to me, it's the cost of it, the actual dollar cost, and then
0: the time and energy it's going to take. So if we can move through it fast, it's worth it. Actually, so now that I'm thinking this through, I can see there's maybe a couple of things. So one is the cost relative to how much you, what your current resources are. Yes. But there's also then the potential benefit exactly. should it succeed. So you'll push that limit of what your current resources are if the result is dramatic enough. It's like saying I'll, I'll bet three thousand dollars on a potential hundred thousand dollar return, yes. but I'm not going to spend three thousand dollars on a potential five thousand dollars.
1: Exactly return. right. Exactly right. I mean that kind of level of return, that sort of uh, linear or iterative return, is not enough. You need exponential return. Okay. You know, you need a you need a exponential return. That's the best way to think of it. So we want to spend you know ten thousand dollars on something that could could lead us to seeing where we can get a million. Got you it. You know. Yes. I mean, it won't produce the million. But it gives us the map that then helps us take the next steps. It might end up taking us, you know, 100,000 to get to that point okay. where a million. But
0: okay. it shows the path. Talk about the measurement component of it now. Like, do you need to have a set KPI before you even get started with the gambit? or, or why? Yeah, I don't think you can use a KPI because the thing is, is, it's all
1: unmapped territory. You're not even sure what's exactly out there. So what you're looking for is that there's something there. Think of if you have a marketing campaign. You put the, uh, the campaign out there and the phones don't ring. No one comes to the website. You start thinking maybe this campaign isn't connecting with people, right? But you can do that if you spent ten thousand dollars on an ad campaign on Facebook. You could probably know. For I would think you definitely could know if you spent ten thousand dollars. If there's no positive feedback, or if that positive feedback seems so out of proportion, it just seems like there's nothing there. Versus when you get something and it connects, you know, and it, it's in the right direction, you get feedback right away. Now it's not big, but you go. Well, that was pretty fast. I mean, think about when we launched our All Access yeah. subscription, right? I was right? Just thinking Everyone that. was like, I don't know if people are going to do this. And I'm like, well, we'll know right away. Right. You know, and then we launched it. the first day, you get the sales command and people are like, whoa, that's weird. How did yeah. that
0: happen? And I think you remember you said, well, you know, one person will buy it, it's 10 people. Exactly.
1: It. Exactly right. So that, so is that signs of life? You get the signs of life, then you go, okay, how do we dial this in? And then you start that iterative process and you, then you can start setting KPIs, you know, about, well we did this and it produced a sale. Okay, so then how could we, you know, intelligently or even somewhat scientifically deploy more resources there to try and see if we can scale this from here.
0: But on the flip side of that, as a founder as some, you know, as a leader in a company, you know, you have these ideas for gambits and a lot of times people get a little Attached to the idea, to the potential. Yeah. Okay, this is going to work. I know this is going to work. We just haven't figured it out yet. That can result sometimes in, you know, you may be chasing your tail a little bit. This gambit becomes a distraction now. It becomes a drain. It's not going where you wanted to go, but damn it, we just haven't found this the right angle of it yet. So at what point do you leave the gambit and move on? That is the biggest thing, actually. And first, the cost of
1: a gambit is definitely not the actual money that it costs it's the organizational distraction yes and organizational resources that are the biggest thing And and initiatives that fail are just so exhausting to the organization we talked about the costs of for the resources of the team and then people get kind of bought into the idea and then how do you know when you should let it go, right? Mm-hmm. That was the big thing. That was- your Exactly, okay, so exactly. You know you should let it go when the first thing you do, there should be some signs of hope. You should see it right away. When it works, it actually works right away. So I'll think, um, I'll use another example in our business. I always believed that there's, the, the one of the ways that, you know, the marketplace could be more successful is if we had more velocity in the assets, meaning if they exchange hands more frequently. Okay. And so if you remember, at the same time we launched the 10-year term, which everyone remembers. And you know, I use this example of, see, we can do things like that. And that, I remember that as a success. At the same time, we had this auto-relist thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Total failure. Total failure. So we had it out there. It was out there for a few weeks. It wasn't getting any traction. Just the basic idea was that, that we need more velocity. We need you know subsequent transactions to occur. Mm-hmm. So that idea still stayed there, but that approach to it, that bullet fired in that direction, that gambit in that specific way proved... Pretty quickly, not to have any positive feedback, I mean, from the market. So we just stopped doing it. And then, you know, a few months ago, we launched a secondary market on our platform instead, a much more sophisticated effort toward it. We had more resources. We were in a better financial position. We would like taking that kind of a capital risk for us wasn't the same bet it would have been a year earlier. And so we launched a secondary market. I mean, that started
0: to show traction right away. Right. And then this goes back to the question again, which is that there's different ways of determining whether or not something's working. Either the idea isn't the right idea or the execution is the wrong execution. Right. And in a gambit, A gambit's on the idea. But if you don't get positive feedback, the idea is not right. So that's what I'm trying to get at. In the example you mentioned with the secondary market and the buy it now, the buy it now, it so, was the auto relist. Auto relist, excuse probably, me. Yes, yeah. right. The auto relist. That didn't work. But the idea of a secondary market where investors would buy from other investors. Still lasted, but only in my head. I
1: was like, Well, this approach didn't succeed, it's not working like that, it's just too complicated. But I got so I got I got because it didn't work. Then I it's not that there was negative feedback, there was no feedback, feedback, which means it didn't work. And so then you go, you start thinking, Well, a few weeks where we should have had some feedback of some kind, some that should have gotten some kind of little bit of sign of hope. But then you start thinking, well, what is it? What are the dynamics that would have kept it from being successful? And then you start, you know, you think, well, it's lumpy, you know, the, the mindset of the, of the investor at that point doesn't make sense for them to flip it right away. Mm-hmm. And you start going, okay, well, what's another way we could do it? It sits in the back of your, my head anyway, in this case, and I was trying to think of a different way over time. And as we had more resources, then we could take a much more sophisticated
0: bet at okay. doing it, and that worked. And that showed signs of hope right away. Right away, exactly. So, and then, which goes back to my question, which is at what point do you have to let the idea in the back of your head go when, when you know, plan A, okay, you put the sonar in that direction, there was no table, put the sonar in the other direction, okay, we found there was, was a table, but let's suppose the, the secondary market similarly had no bounce back in the, in the table, as it were, in your yep. bad analogy. How many signals do you put out before you realize, okay, clearly there's just no table? I think you have to constantly keep putting them out no matter what. As long as it's in a low-level way. Low, low risk, okay.
1: proportional okay. risk. Because in this case, where we're trying to get secondary market sales, that was ultimately, that was really the objective. If we're trying to actually get that, why are we trying to get that? Because every effective market has that. So if, this, if we're trying to build an effective market, then there must be a place for this in the market. So where is that? Where is that place for it? Knowing that what we're trying to do ultimately is to build an effective market, that is a characteristic of market, as you know, there are lots of other characteristics of markets. And so we're just looking for ways of how that can actually fit within this. So it still stays there. But the important thing is, is that you don't allow the organization to be exhausted ever by an idea that isn't showing signs of hope. You have to pull it from the organizational zeitgeist as fast as possible, whether it's actually taxing on actual resources or if people see it as a public failure that you know, just makes them you know, less motivated or engaged. I mean, you just mm-hmm. can't let it sit out there for long.
0: That's why if I'm looking at our examples again, when I see the different manifestations of this idea, secondary market, we tried one thing, pretty low level, didn't work. Okay, it sat for a bit, almost a yeah, year. Yeah, say and, yeah, yeah. and then, and then secondary market recently, which is now in a much different place. The larger one that we kind of referenced earlier, yeah, is um, when we did the flow, the yeah. M, M&M, the M M&M and M deal. That one we we didn't try to recreate. We just realized it was in the it was a much different product to use that kind of term in a clunky way for yep. what we do. It wasn't the marketplace. It was other than the marketplace. It was a product for a different market, public market.
1: It really was. And, and so that was a that started off as a gambit, relatively low
0: risk, and then- um, Became really high risk really quick.
1: It's the like boiling frog kind of thing.
0: Right. Boiling frog, perfect. That's what I was getting at. How do you avoid being the boiling frog in the gambits? There's also the analogy of being pot committed if you spend a certain amount. Okay, now we got to keep doing it because yes. you spent so much on it. At some point, you guys got to cut yes. the line.
1: and even And eventually, that's what we did. There was a path for still pursuing it.
0: Well, we, I guess we don't want to get it. right, but to be yeah. fair, it was about to work when the, the NASDAQ listing letter came in that just, yep. that, that, was a it was unexpected, deflating. it was really deflating. And it's like, and the cost that would have, and the time that would have been necessary to re up it again, yep. was just too much. So it's not exactly a, a perfect example, but what I, I was always impressed by the fact that, you know, we spent so much time on this money, sure, but it wasn't the real hard part. It was just, just all the effort and all the attention and all, and all the momentum and stuff. And then to be able to say, okay, you know what? No deflating as, you know, organization and also, you know, what it might look like publicly, but ultimately it was the right decision. And having the, I guess, the fortitude to make that tough decision is something that a lot of people running companies would have problems with.
1: That's because it it went beyond a gambit, you know, and at that point it is really hard to pull the plug. Why do companies fall apart? Why is Sears not what it used to be? Sears was an incredible retailer. I mean, they're the pioneer of retailer, a retailer in the country. I mean, they pioneered it for the world, really. I mean, through their cataloging and, you know, people settling the old west would order houses from Mm -hmm. the Sears catalog, (laughs) okay? I mean, like, these guys were incredible innovators. And then as the world was shifting around them, you know, they were committed to these retail locations. They were committed to their merchandising strategies, and they weren't willing to cut the sunk costs yet, you know? They weren't willing to walk away from these things. And if they would have, you know, then Sears could easily have been Walmart or Amazon. But it's very hard, once you have something, to cut it off for organizations to have a really hard time with it. So I think the one of the most important things to do, and the reason that I called during our leadership meeting, I said, these are gambits. You have to call the thing what the thing is in order to treat the thing as the thing needs to be treated by the organization.
0: In other words, to give it the perspective that it, that yeah. it needs
1: internally. Exactly, because it's like, this might work, might fail. Either outcome is okay. We learn something. And we have to recognize that this is gonna happen. And um, so we're gonna focus on it. We're gonna do lots of these things. Some are going to work, some of them aren't. So, there's a culture of where that failure is okay and normal, and we learn from it. And so, you can have then these signals of, Are we getting any signs of life? No. Well, then now's the time to pull the plug. You know how gambits work. Mm-hmm. Once people understand that that's what happens, they go, It's obviously not working, so let's move on to something else.
0: Right. And then maybe something that you learned in that gambit leads to the next gambit, for instance. And, and to your point about Sears, you know, what it sounds like, maybe, and I'm I haven't studied Sears in a very great degree, <laughs> but like knows. maybe they weren't doing enough of their own gambits. I mean, it's doing the gambits exactly. that helps you keep out of that, like that institutional thinking that, you know, this is what we do. This is our thing. This is our products. You need to do gambits in order to test the lasting relevance of those historical exactly. institutions.
1: You know, I know in another, another talk, we were going to talk about infinite game. Yes. So I know that we both read that book by Simon Sinek. If you think of things as this infinite game, something that doesn't really end, we'll go right. way more detail later, yeah, then- yeah. In a game that doesn't have boundaries, there must be a, an ongoing discovery of what's possible mm-hmm. because you don't have the right map because that map is constantly changing and expanding in ways that you don't understand. So you know again, you're in a dark room well you get a map of it, but you know there's uh, corridors added to this thing all mm-hmm. the time and mm-hmm. if you aren't constantly looking around poking around to see where those where those edges are, then you're going to be stuck in this imagined little space. Meanwhile, people are operating in a totally different world than you and you're wondering why they're crushing you. But you, ha- you have these
0: artificial constraints around you because you didn't bother to explore, to test the boundaries of what's possible. So so the gambits, not, this is not so much just a, a startup growth activity. This is really something that every, regardless of your size, well, like we said, we started off by using Apple as the example. Apple wasn't exactly a small startup when it started the, the gambit of uh, you know the iPod and whatnot, but, but there you go. So Well, let me, uh, yeah.
1: as another example, it also applies in personal life. Nassim Taleb, who I'm a huge fan of, as you mm-hmm. know, wrote The Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Antifragile is my favorite of his. But he talks about the um, sort of lopsided bets. I can't actually remember the exact term he used for him, But he says, going to a dinner party. Yeah, worst case scenario is you go to a dinner party and you know, you have mediocre food and the company's kind of boorish or whatever. And you know, you, you, you know three hours or two hours of your evening is sort of you know whatever. And you go home. Best case scenario is you meet your future wife. That's a gambit. Okay. So you have this stuff in your personal life too. You have, to, you have to explore uncharted territory to understand what's possible. And if you aren't willing to ever try those things, you have no idea what you're capable of. But you have to take it's low risk stuff, mm-hmm. you know, a dinner party, you get invited to a dinner party, you go. And who knows what will happen
0: there. This really helped me understand it better. I, I think I might think in this camp, but it's a little bit more tactical than what you've uh, described. And this is obviously much broader. Let me just talk about a couple
1: of specific sure. things. I, th- I just, just use a modern case of one. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is useful because you know, we think about music stuff all the time with Spotify mm. So Spotify, you know, Spotify working in a, when you're working in a regulated space, it's really hard. another right, not regulated exactly, but they're basically working with licenses from you know, a handful of large music companies that they need in order for the business to work. But so they start off just in one geography. Right? They didn't go worldwide first. They did did in Sweden first, right? right?
0: Nordic countries. Yeah.
1: Nordic countries. Where it was much easier for them to get the licenses. And it's expansion over time. And it was actually very slow. You know, it took them a long time oh, before they came to the US. Tell me about it. Yeah. It was forever. And so you know, so the big people like Apple didn't even worry about it at all. They didn't even consider it. It was kind of a joke. No one really considered it. And so the music industry didn't consider it even a threat. Like They just go, well, you know, why not? It'll never go into anything. And then, and then people started to get upset because they realized per stream they were getting, not getting enough. You know, the Gambit is the streaming service in the Nordic countries It works. So then they go into their 25 iterations of the iPod, essentially, mm-hmm. their version of that. They expand it in different countries. They improve the algorithm for matching. But these are not, like, huge things. They're just, it's like different versions. It's the, you know, iPhone... Yeah, 5s they, they, versus they,
0: iphone 5 there was like a ton of different ways of what was the free tier versus what was the paid tier yeah. and that that's every couple of months you see that that gets juggled up so yeah i remember all of that yeah family plans all of right, right. it's like
1: growth hacking kind of stuff it's the way sure. i would think of it they're just trying to figure out how to expand it so as they start to realize the boundaries of that you know by mm-hmm. testing these different things and seeing that oh, you know this territory is not going to be big enough for us so how do we how do we look beyond this and then you know they start thinking about Okay, they go a little meta on it, not music, but we go audio. We start mm-hmm. thinking podcasts. And mm-hmm. like last year and then, you know, when they spent four hundred million dollars acquiring some podcast companies, a technology company and also a content company. People are like, What? Why would you even doesn't make sense? You know, that people were surprised by it. And I was like, oh, oh, oh and at the same time, they filed a dispute with the uh, I can't remember the authority that basically around how much they'd have to pay Mm -hmm. to um, the
0: the copyright royalty board.
1: Right. So they filed a dispute and it it was an uproar from everyone about it because they're like, you know, they're trying to take stuff away from artists. And at the time I, I hypothesized that what they were actually doing is they were saying they didn't think about their business clearly enough. They were thinking of themselves only as this music licensing. So they looked at all of their revenue basically as being used for that. And then they started going, you know what, but if we produce our own content, or if we control the content in a different way with a different licensing structure, we don't want to have to pay royalties to, you know, to rights holders in music for the proportion of, of listening uh, ship that's essentially devoted to other types of content. And then they go, well, we can change the margins of our business, which are very poor by going into the podcasting thing. It was a total gambit to try it. And then it's like they figured it out at one point that it could work. They, it's like they, they, ha- they put a couple podcasts on their platform. They saw there was a lot of listenership and they go, wait a second. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe we're, why do we have to be all music? And then they go, okay, well, let's take $400 million and let's buy some assets. It's a gambit for them still, $400 million. It's not that big of a deal for this company at that point. But for the first one it was just putting a couple podcasts right. in their player though. Right. It's a gambit. And then they, they expand to that, that, where they spend the $400 million, And at that same moment, they realize, holy shit, we set up our deal totally wrong with the record companies at, you know, with the copyright royalty board. We have to actually pause this in some way and get this other uh, situation considered at least. You know, otherwise, their economics of the business wouldn't change, regardless of how they innovated. So it caused a lot of problems. Music business not liking it, but it's not taking anything away from the music business, actually. It's expanding listenership beyond just music. So I think that as a large organization, the little gambit with podcasts, it was impressive that they did it, and they had to spin the whole organization around once they got that information about that there was a sign of hope there, that they could change the dynamics of the business completely it caused this like a whipsaw within the organization that, you know, and the industry because of the, the filing with the copyright royalty board. So how you get those things pushed in the organization is tough once you get that information. But the fact that they had the spine to see the thing, to adjust their landscape so quickly and then push it into the organization so everyone would understand it and make the necessary changes and deal with the flack. The survivability literally of that company was online because Apple doesn't need it to make any money from it. Amazon doesn't need to make any money from it. Spotify has to make some money on this, or they're not going to exist. Right.
0: What that brings up to mind is that what you just described was sort of what Netflix had to do as well, or really anyone. Like if you're just in the business of licensing content from someone else, aggregating it, and then streaming it for consumers in, in a way that lets them find it, that's a limited time frame business, basically, right? So with the Netflix and the Hulu and whatnot, it all became original content, right? Even with like the cable channels, like stars and HBO, like, you know, HBO, you don't, well, HBO has been doing that forever, forever. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's sort of the Genesis to a certain extent of the model, right. That original content. And, and I don't want to get too much into this because it's you know not on, t- on point, but that's what Spotify was trying to do with the podcast is yep. w- where do they find their own original content? They tried it. You, you missed the one step, which was the exclusive licensing component, which, right. which just was a terrible idea. Yep. Well, I mean, it was the right thing to try. Everyone yep. else did it. It wasn't yep. just Spotify, but it's just, yep. it was, Bad for customers, for yep. listeners. So they went into the podcast area. But I think that the root of all of that is not letting yourself, your company, be defined by what you've done before. Exactly. Right. And that's really hard to do, both from a user base standpoint, but also from an internal company standpoint. And, and what we talk about here at Royalty Exchange, a lot of the pushback we get when you try new gambits is usually internally because we're just you know everyone thinks we know what we're doing, and then you you add like something like a ten year term or the whatever. Yeah. Right. We have a really we're not at the point where there's such a large number of people using using the service that we need to be concerned with the customer side of it, but like companies like Netflix or Spotify yep. or others are. Maybe we could close this with that as an idea as the person who is making these gambits, kind of juggling how those gambits are then received both by the, user, you know, the users and by the company itself. Like those are challenges, I think, that we didn't talk about.
1: Yeah, I think the hardest ones, the hard ones are when you basically were operating under it with a map that you realize is deeply incomplete and you have to radically shift things fast in a kind of an artificial timeframe. That's jarring to an organization and an industry and your customers, and that's what Spotify did. Because of the timing of all of the, the licensing stuff, the way that it worked, and when they got, their map was sort of revealed more correctly, they had to, you know, this whipsaw in the organization. And so that's very stressful for everybody. And it's you don't survive a lot of those. Um, I mean, it's like, remember Netflix tried to increase their prices dramatically? Mm-hmm. Remember um, a few years ago, there, were, there was something they were going to do, and there was a huge backlash from customers on it. Huge backlash, and then they, they unwound it. So it's really hard when you make shifts and you do them quickly, and it has a big effect on a lot of people. People are not comfortable with that. It's more like steering a, a huge ocean liner it's slowly turning and, and most people aren't even realizing the people affected by it aren't, you know,
0: aren't jarred by the quick changes, you know? The customer and the staff become the boiling frog. Exactly, words.
1: exactly. But, you know, if you, but, <laughs> they use but, a bad but, analogy. Yeah, but, you know, the thing is, if you're moving them all in a direct, you say this, our goal is to be able to provide this end for customers. Everyone understands that the way they're doing it, they like the way it's being done, doesn't really matter. But as long as you don't change The fundamental value proposition—you know, the just cause you're trying to bring to the world—as long as you don't throw that away, Mm -hmm. people will move along with it. People want to follow it, but you just—it just can't be jarring. We don't.
0: And then now that I'm thinking through the question and the answer, it's like just just as much as the gambit is you testing to see if you're going in the right direction, it's also slowly bringing everybody else along in that direction while you're doing it, and it's a slow iterative process. I mean, like I said with Apple, they didn't go from making computers to. Here's an iPod, here's a music service, and here's a phone all in one day. I mean, they couldn't, but like no. if you did, it'd be like, What the hell is this? Your a mobile company now? You know Yeah. The
1: customers but, would be would be jarred by it if right. you go from your PC company mm-hmm. to now you're a music, an MP three player company. Right. And if that's what if it was a total shift overnight, customers wouldn't accept it. They'd go, What do you know about MP three? Sony's been doing making these for a decade. Right. Imagine all the engineers that have been working on computers for, there for the uh, who am I? Years. Why am I here? Yeah, this is my identity. I'm now. not going to let you do this. Right? Like, I'm, they're going to stop it. Right. So it has to. There is a gradual shift to these things, and that's why it's and, got
0: its own natural sort of set of those. balances and checks. you know what I mean? Right. Like, you couldn't, even if you could do it, you couldn't.
1: Sometimes there are these artificial circumstances where you have to kind of force things, and I would say that our ten-year term one, mm-hmm. I had to force down people's throats. Yes, I so I feel like I had to do it because I just. I didn't, couldn't ex- wait for the buy-in from people. Mm-hmm. The, the business needed it. And Spotify, you know, because of the licensing, the way that worked, they didn't have a choice either. Got but it. ultimately, gambits have to be done all the time by a business. And I think if you want to grow as a human, I think they have to be done by humans individually all the mm-hmm. time. But they're low risk. It's the worst case scenario is that you have kind of a, a boring, bland dinner with boorish people. Like, that should be the downside. You should just be able to summarize it like that. And the upside is you're sitting next to your future wife. Got it. If you think about that in the business context, I think that's exactly what gambits are supposed to do.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Thanks for, for breaking that down. We'll see how our next gambits go. And maybe a year from now, we'll be talking about the, the start to finish on that one. So Awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks, Anthony. No worries. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer, Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.